The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to Panoptic. I am Juan Pablo, uh, your host, next to uh, Jason, uh, for another episode of our podcast. This is our eighth episode, right, Jason? Glad to be back to talk more about automation. Yep. And uh, it's our second episode on automation and the possible economic effects of automation. And as we discussed during our last episode, automation is a phenomenon that touches on really, I think, the core themes of our podcast, Jason, Uh, the relationship between technology and work being a central one, for instance. Uh, However, today I also want to emphasize that the issue of communication coordination is also central to this I, this this problem of automation, and I'll try to get to that, what I mean by that in a minute. Um, even if we don't think of these things as being related, right? Coordination, communication, automation. But maybe we'll, maybe we'll be able to make that connection today. Uh, during our last episode, we reviewed the problem of automation as it has been approached in the U.S. and in the context of the Democratic presidential primary. Today, however, we're going to review... Uh, this article that we brought up a last episode that but we touched upon briefly. Today we're going to go in depth into the arguments of uh, this article by Aaron Benevov, who's a professor at uh, University of Chicago. And he has an article actually in the previous issue of the New Left Review titled Automation and the Future of Work. It was the first part, the first of a two-part series that actually the second part just dropped this week. Jason and I just uh, finished reading that article this morning. I think you would find it really interesting. I have not read it. Well, let's talk about the first part of the, the first article, the one that we actually read, right? It, it gives us a different perspective on the issue of automation than the one that we discussed last week. And it does so because it looks at the issue from a global systemic perspective. Um, one that is fundamental, I think, for understanding automation and the future of work. Uh, for this episode, then Jason and I would propose that we go over this argument made by Vinovov, try to tease out what the main uh, our propositions are, and and that way, you know, by bringing supplementary supplementary material, we can put that article and its arguments into perspective and maybe understand what's at stake in automation. What are some of the issues that we have to think through? So let's review really quickly quickly what the takeaways were from last week, Jason, and what would you say were the main takeaways for you? Technology and automation in particular have been areas of interest for me since watching Terminator 2 Judgment Day as a child. And more recently through my work, <laughs> I've been exposed to the process of creating software automations that reduce workload for my clients. So when I discovered Andrew Yang, who's really brought the automi- automation discourse into the mainstream, 
Uh, I wanted to understand the arguments on the ground. You know, what are the candidates saying about automation? Are these arguments resonating with voters? And of course, are the arguments valid? So here's what we found. Here's what we discussed on the last episode. So for the Yang camp, automation is an important driver of manufacturing job displacement in the U.S., and it will continue to displace jobs not just in the manufacturing sector, but also in trucking, retail, contract writing, and all sorts of sectors. The most frequently cited research supporting this narrative originates with Ball State University, and the research finds that U.S. manufacturing employment has been falling, but output generally has been increasing, allowing for some statistical error there. Um, These trends are mostly easily explained by automation. Uh, But in the opposite camp, Elizabeth Warren shared an article by Susan Hausman at the Upjohn Institute arguing that the preponderance of the appearance of increasing growth in the manufacturing sector is due to statistical error relating to how the Bureau of Labor Statistics adjusts the numbers for price and quality changes. So, in fact, there's been basically no or very little growth in U.S. manufacturing output. And according to Hausman, when you disaggregate the computer manufacturing sector from overall manufacturing, you find that overall manufacturing output flattens out. Meanwhile, the appearance of increased growth in computer manufacturing is not related to automation, but rather input cost reductions caused by offshoring. Uh, And couple that with the U.S. being slow to adopt automating technologies much slower than foreign competitors. So for Hausman, U.S. manufacturing jobs have been displaced, but not to the mass exodus extent that the Yang camp may have you believing. So that is one area, actually, I think, where Hausman may diverge from Benevov. But they agree in many other places. Um, Hausman, like Benavov, puts forth a more limited definition of automation as something that must fully substitute human labor, like robots standing around an assembly line. So when we think about automation more broadly in terms of general technologies, even like software and data analytics that enable firms to produce more with less labor, then it might be that automation is having a much larger impact on the status of labor than Hausman is willing to admit. Hausman's research is pretty recent, and we really haven't seen any robust attempt to challenge her argument, or at least you know, I'm not aware of any. So we might view Benavov's perspective on the global growth economy as the alternative discourse to these polit- uh, more like local political discourses. And true to form of a critical theorist like you, Juan, Benavov is making a systemic argument where automation is just a small piece of the story. He offers more radical solutions, and they're radical because they push against the grain and probably break things when implemented. What do you what do you mean by that? What do you mean by break things when implemented? So when I think of, and we're going to get into this concept of an overcapacity, it's something that is not very tangible. How you get the markets to work more in favor of providing more positive externalities rather than net negative externalities is quite a challenge. So either you're going to do it from within the existing profit model, or you're going to do it from without. And I think when you go from a, you approach this from more of a critical perspective, you end up providing an exterior uh, approach to these things. So necessarily you're going to have to break the system quite a bit to make it work the way that you want it to. Well, reconfiguring the system and breaking the system are two very different things, right? Well, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, the New Deal reconfigured the system. It didn't break it, right? Yeah. I think radical means something very different today than, you know, maybe we go back to the post-World World War II era, then certainly it was radical. But, yeah, you know, thinking about the local political discourses, I, I don't expect this critical story to be uttered by any U.S. presidential candidate. 
it's really so far removed from the more popular visceral narrative of you know like i'm in ohio i'm from ohio and i used to make uh, good money building widgets but now amazon has replaced me with a robot and there are no jobs for me anymore you know what do you say to this person you know if you're benavov you say well sir madam the the whole world is going through a process of deindustrialization it's not just the robots it's the whole freaking system and no candidate is going to win by saying this, frankly. So I'm kind of at a loss here. I don't quite know what to do with Benavov or how to read him skeptically. So Juan, I'm leaning on you here. What, according to Benavov, is is it that the local political discourses surrounding automation are missing? And why is it important for us to think like a critical theorist here? Sure, I think that's a, those are good questions. Uh, I actually think that even if this narrative isn't being this described uh, like this, um, the way Venevov is doing, I think implicitly at least a couple of candidates, particularly Bernie Sanders, are attuned to this narrative and have their own way of describing it. For instance, I think the, the Green New Deal is precisely an attempt to think how to kickstart an economy globally that is at... And we'll we'll review this in a minute, but according to Venevov, has reached basically what he calls a long time ago, reached system overcapacity, and it has been sluggishly growing ever since. And we'll go over the numbers of what he means by that in a minute. Uh, so I do think something like the Green New Deal, just as the, as the New Deal was in its time, um, is an attempt to reframe and re, in some ways re, reconfigure the basic framing of a market economy. Uh, to make it work in a specific way, so we'll talk about what that might mean in a minute. But let's well, keep, so let's get, get, let, let's just plant a, a flag there really quick. So yeah, you when when I read this, uh, it's not clear to me if if we're talking about or Benavov is is ending up with a solution where we are maintaining a market economy, or if it's something beyond that. And I guess well, that's having, where having my, read having read his second, you know, uh, the second part of his article today. Uh, He's actually arguing for us to go beyond thinking a market, beyond a market economy, um, and that and that was that was what I, I thought. Yeah, as well. and that yeah. specifically, and that specifically has to do with his way, the way he sees the problem of automation. In the second uh, part of the one, which, the second part of his his uh, his article, which I think we should probably spend another episode discussing at some point, he he lays out the reasons why he thinks UBI can't solve this problem, which in this part, I think he wants, he wanted to show that UBI is not the, the driver of job loss across the world or even in the U S automation, that it, that it's being right. automation, that it's being, that it's being, that's being, that it's being touted as by, let's say other, you know, what he calls the automation theorist. It's not the driving force. Technology is not the driving force of, of the lack of uh, demand for labor is basically the main argument that he lays out in this part, which I think we're about to discuss in a minute. In the second one, he talks about why UBI cannot be the solution uh, to a problem in a market economy, why UBI cannot solve the issues of a market economy that we have as a market economy globally at this point in time. And I think it's a really interesting argument that has to do with the nature of services specifically. Um, and the nature of uh, inequality uh, as people leave manufacturing and enter service jobs, which uh, have a specific in nature, right? You're not producing anything in a service job. You're offering something like a haircut or, you know, at a, at a higher end, you're offering 
some kind of some kind of like higher end service, but you're not producing anything. Um, so for him, there's a specific way in which this not producing anything it makes it impossible really to grow an econ an economy um, the way you could with manufacturing. So that's an interesting problem, and and but I'd like to maybe bracket that for now, and we could get back to that uh, at some point. I think it's sure. important to understand why. I think it's first important to understand why he sees automation. Uh, you know why he how he understands automation. Why he understands it. Why he's trying to make an argument that it's not the driver of you know sort of massive job loss either here or around the world that it's being touted as being, and yet why in the context of what he will call basically a stagnant uh, global economy, why nonetheless automation can be extremely destructive, but UBI would not be a solution, right? So maybe let's kick off with the article, right? And see if we can maybe trace this argument that he makes. Um, uh, let me let me just caveat quick that um, not, it's not a judgment on whether or not he's right or wrong. It's just my feeling is that to move beyond a market economy is far more difficult than acting within the market economy. And I think that was the point I was trying to make earlier. Yeah. No, I mean, of course, I think it's definitely more difficult. It forces us to have to rethink everything about the way we've done business for the last almost 200 years. And it, has to, it forces us to think everything for the way we understand, uh, the way we configure work, the way we configure, um, the, way we configure the, the supply, the, the, the production and distribution of goods and services, and we have to sort of, if we're sticking true to some basic um, elements of our tradition, we have to sort of figure out how to do that in a way that would be democratic. Um, so there's a lot. Right. For for those of us who I think agree with uh, this this specific diagnosis and and understand, I think agree with a critique of some of the uh, logics of capital and their limitations and their problems. Um, the problem of how to do it, especially in hindsight of the 20th the history of the 20th century and the failures of central planning models, um, especially central planning models that were tied to totalitarian frameworks, um, is a you know one that one has to keep in mind all the time. That being said, I I have a sense that uh, that if if even if uh, that this problem is not one that can be strictly solved by the market. That doesn't mean we have to necessarily get rid of markets, but that this is not a market solution that we can neither, neither that neither uh, the problem we're about to lay out nor things like climate change, for instance, can be solved by a market. Um, these are questions. These are political questions that we have to sort of come up with new frameworks for structuring markets and even areas beyond the market. That um, I think that's a question left for maybe another episode. Yeah, somehow we've already gotten to the end of, of this episode. <laughs> well, because so. I think you're, you know, you're taking us to a horizon point, which is where the contention begins politically. There yeah. are not only, I think, belief questions in terms of how people conceive of, uh, you know, especially in the hindsight of the, the of the 20th century and the history of the 20th century and the context of the Cold War. It's still difficult for people to get out of the mindset that there's, you know there's a sort of good versus evil story being told here and that we, if we stray for anything like a market economy in any way or experiment with it or reconfigure it or somehow rethink its framings and the way it looks to the political 
and to institutions that were somehow like immediately starting to walk down the line of some kind of totalitarian state, um, which, which I think is part of our difficulty with talking honestly about capitalism and what it is, its history, how it's changed, what it does, including its problems, its systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I think you're taking us to that, you know, that horizon point, which is people, not only people would have a hard time accepting it, uh, a lot of people, not some other people wouldn't so much, um, I think we've seen a, a, sh- a, a sea change in terms of people's perspectives on all the possibilities. Uh, but it will also be a political fight to reconfigure anything because there's a lot of interests at stake. Uh, yeah. You know, Very big well. corporations aren't going to give up their profits and their, their, that's not what they're designed to do so easily. Uh, they're going to do what they can to make sure that they maintain their power one way or another well, um, i'm just in so, so much suspense right now so let's get into it I'm sure everybody else so everybody else is so let's get into it so let's get let's kick off with the article now and see if this argument helps us reframe last week's discussion right so benefit begins by discussing what he calls quote unquote the automation discourse and he argues that this discourse rests on four premises and and Keep in mind, he's, he calls the automation theorists people who are in the at the right of the, spe- the political spectrum, in the center, and in the left. So there's, but all the, uh, more or less, he's more interested, I think, in those in the center and the left. Um, and he's really engaging with some of the ones that are in the left, even with, if he disagrees with some of their kind of, the, the reasons they think automation uh, is a problem and so forth. So he says... Four of these premises are that uh, that workers are already being displaced by automation. Number one, that this displacement is a sign that we are on a verge, on the verge of a fully automated society. Number two, and that automation should entail our collective liberation from toil. You know, we should be able to automate all these horrible, uh, any kind of sort of repetitive, uh, soul-killing job. But this dream may may turn into a nightmare because we live in a society where we have to work to live. This is more of, I think, uh, the uh, left-leaning automation theorists. And finally, that we need something like UBI to inaugurate a new society. And this UBI, actually, uh, he talks about it in the second installment. It runs across the spectrum. There are right-wing people supporting, saying we need something like UBI. There are, with, with arguments that have to do with things like family and culture and then there's center and then there's left perspectives on ubi but uh benavov is not convinced by this discourse and before going into why that is he provides us with a definition of automation and here's his definition verbatim um i'm going to quote him he says automation may be distinguished as a specific form of labor saving technical innovation automation technologies fully substitute for human labor rather than merely augmenting human productive capacities now that's the end of the quote now jason i know that you are you have issues with this uh definition yeah it's not it's not that uh, i had you know major issues with the accuracy of of the definition but Based on my knowledge, the vast majority of what I would consider automations substitute tasks in a process. Uh, They don't substitute people. Uh, 
So there are particular situations where an automation may fully substitute a process. So, for example, you work for a university and your job is to read every submitted application and confirm work history, prior education, citizen and military status, criminal history, things like that. You can build a software bot to perform all of these tasks. So in this particular situation, the university builds a data validation bot to effectively substitute the person or the entire process. But more often, a bot automates only a few tasks in the process. So maybe the person does more than just validate data. Maybe that's 20% of his role. But also he conducts the interviews and sits on a committee where he contributes to discussions about who the university should move forward on. Uh, parts of these tasks may also be impacted by automations, but overall they require the higher cognitive skills of a human to be completed. So in the worst case, the bot reduces the person's workload by 20%, which results in a 20% wage cut. But in the best case, the person gets to focus more on the higher cognitive tasks, and he gets paid even more in the long run. So maybe he becomes 15% more productive as a result of the automation. So he gets a 15% wage increase. Uh, the research seems to indicate that this best case example is prevalent in the workplaces of today, even while many automations have indeed fully substituted humans, including the robots standing around assembly lines displacing thousands of manufacturing jobs. Um, Benavov's de definition doesn't seem to allow for these distinctions when we are thinking about automation, uh, but maybe he has a good reason for this. What's, what's your take on this, Juan? Well, it seems to me that, I mean, here we're discussing a question of semantics that's important, but to me, he does discuss how automation is either labor-enhancing in terms of productivity or labor replacing and i think that's an important i think that is an important distinction to keep in mind right um and i think your example gets to that to an extent right there are different ways in which automation can go uh you know and i think keeping those two uh qualifiers are important labor augmenting or labor replacing uh and they change how we react to it how we measure it how we think about it right um and you know, I, I think it's important to note that Venevov does admit that uh, where you stand, you know, where you come down on this debate to an extent depends on where you come down on the definition. Um, whether the technology is implemented or labor augmented, labor augmenting or labor substituting. Also, Venevov reminds us, and it's that it is very hard to estimate to what extent these technologies go one way or the other, as you were just discussing. Yeah. Um, as he notes, you know, automation is actually a central feature of the history of capitalism. It's by no means a new phenomenon. I think, you know, for instance, of Henry Ford's assembly line setup. This was a successful technique for increasing the output, uh, increasing output by reducing the process of production, uh, in this case of cars, into a series of clearly defined, simplified, and repeatable steps. And upon, you know, among the side effects that this had was it de-skilled labor in the factories in Ford's factories. But on the other hand, it increased the productive capacity, right? Uh, so this is a form of automation, but it's not a, uh, it's not, it's a labor augmenting automation. It's at the result in total labor substitution, even if the effects for the actual labor labor are de-skilling uh, in a sense. So this working definition, I think, helps us see that labor is not always replaced in its entirety, um, especially when it's a matter of enhancing productive capacity. Got it. Well, that's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of the other research that we talked about last week have um, fairly limited views of 
what an automation is. And, you know, mm-hmm. there are different estimates of the impact of the automation depending on uh, how you define it. Hmm. I mean, it's similar to my previous example. Uh, Benavov observes that the notion of a fully automated production mechanism that enables humans to adopt new modes of life and work and frees them from wage dependency, that's been around since the early 20th century, since um, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but so it was a Russian-American Harvard economist, Wazily Leontief. So we might think about the current automation discourse as humanity's official entry into the fourth industrial revolution, but really these ideas have existed for centuries. I thought this was interesting. So, I mean, for Benavov, when the automation discourse periodically comes to a head through history, it's motivated by social anxiety about the functioning of the labor markets. So if you accept this analysis, automation isn't necessarily the source of our anxiety, but an effect of it. So is that how you see it as well, Juan? Um, Yeah, partly, I think. But at the same time, you know, I think we have our capacity for automation is definitely increasing. Uh, But... On the other hand, automation is no by no means new. Capitalism is forced to automate. It's part of its increasing, you know, it's 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 the demand that it has every firm to compete in markets has to to an extent seek competitive advantages. And but part of the part of seeking competitive advantages is either lowering labor costs or finding ways to make your labor more productive, right? Set up set up a set up different organizations of labor or automate certain things away or find machines that can make your workers more productive. So automation is really, a, it's inbuilt into capitalism, you could say. Um, I'm not sure then, you know, when we think about it, whether it's just a, uh, motivated by, you know, whether it's uh, just a source of anxiety or sort of an effect of our anxiety, I think it's inbuilt into capitalism. Uh, it's part of its dynamism. It's part of its power it's part of what makes it extremely it's made the system extremely nimble and and powerful right but it's also perhaps not the 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 sort of like underlying cause of our specific woes at this moment i think is what venevov is trying to argue um because you know benevov and let's move on with his argument i think benevov wants to argue that automation it's a discourse that arises periodically in the history of capitalism. So, as you mentioned, it's come up before. This isn't the first time. Um, but the, his argument is more subtle than simply saying that this, you know, automation discourse is wrong. And, and he finds it this discourse really productive. And for, for him, it highlights that capitalism holds latent within itself the capacity for collective liberation from toil. Um, I know that you had some questions about, about this idea, right? Yeah, if maybe we can ins- expand on this collective liberation from toil. Is, is he yeah. conceding that automation may in fact free us from labor uh, labor or undesirable forms of labor? I think he is. I think he is conceding and understand. I think not only conceding, but I think he, this is part, this will go on to be part of his critique, I think, of what the limits of the market system are. Um, we have the capacity right now to produce enough food and goods and services and everything to produce to supply them to the world's population by more than you know more than a certain number fold um right um we have in terms of you know if we the difficulty here becomes one of like uh one of uh the fact that we can right now 
basically produce anything we need for to to feed clothes supply seven billion eight billion people uh but this is not exactly the case right uh, even though we can right so there's a, clearly a disjunction between what we're capable of doing and even with our technologies there's no reason why we shouldn't be capable of getting rid of the most the most uh soul-killing physically demanding uh in a negative sense sort of jobs and yet and yet we haven't right so there's so i think there's a part of a part of that is his building up his critique of the limits of the market system to really solve um certain problems and he really goes into this in his second take where he talks about the persistence of underemployment how actually what our biggest threat is right now is the question of underemployment um not automation but i i think we need to leave that for a little later once he underst- we understand better his overall argument hmm. mm-hmm. well a, a lot of the proponents more optimistic proponents of some kind of automation discourse think that capitalism will kind of correct itself so we'll automate a lot of jobs and then capitalism will create new forms of work that the displaced truckers and line workers will become coders or or they'll they'll open mom and pop shops serving the local their their local communities and the big tech managers so is that is that just far too too optimistic for venevov is because the problem for venevov is that a market economy relies on growth and it relies therefore on people to make the money to buy the things that they need so why is that a problem i think this gets us to the core of his argument right um the problem that we're seeing at a global level according to venevov is not one of automation displacing workers but of a global system what he calls global system over capacity what you know what does he mean by global system over capacity uh, to understand it we really need to dive into the data about labor productivity and its changes and the changes in the role of manufacturing in the global economy not just the us over the long period extending from the post-war era to the present the post-war era which by the way is the golden age of capitalism really the group the golden age of growth in terms of gdp in terms of labor productivity in terms of worker salaries etc and also standards of living so one of the central features of the economic landscape landscape at a global level that automation theorists focus on is the persistent low demand of labor for a while now and venevar provides a chart for us from data from the OECD compendium of productivity indicators from 2017 and this chart shows uh labor's that is workers share of income since 1980 through 2015 in G7 in economy so the richest basically economies in the in the world Japan Germany US Canada J- France um etc and it shows that in 1980 the share of income taken in by workers it, it all, in all industries in these economies was 65% while in 2015 it's about 58% um which is a drop of some you know 7 7 percentage at least 7 percentage points or so another graph meanwhile shows that the the OECD countries as a whole in the OECD countries as a whole there was a there's been a split between labor productivity and the real average wage during the same period that is labor productivity has increased at a slightly higher rate than uh the average wage um so that is it seems like workers are more productive but they're incre- increasingly getting a you know a, a smaller ch- share of income and this is uh this is for this is just overall all industries right 
So just to be clear, so G7 labor's share of income is declining. Mm-hmm. Labor productivity is has the appearance of increasing and mm-hmm. real average wages are increasing with productivity growth. Real average wages are not keeping up with productivity. So there's been a split, right? So even though, you know, the real average wage has basically been stagnant, even as productivity continues to rise at a slightly higher rate. This this tells us this this you know this is supposed to tell us something right, um, and this is something actually that auto that Benavov says automation uh, theorists are pointing to because they're saying oh this is this is exactly the sign we're looking for is automate you know that automation um, is taking its toll right uh, for. For the automation theorist, the culprit in this long-term trend is the fall of total income taken in by labor and and a relative fall of wages compared to productivity. That means, you know, if you look at the if you look at the stats in terms of oh, productivity is going up, but there's less demand for labor, and uh, and there's uh, wages are going down. This seems to this is one of the things that automation theorists are reading of. Oh, well, this could be the 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 effect of automation, right? Uh, if productivity continues to rise at a pace faster than wages and workers' in- income, then, you know, that's one interpretation. And this is the one being offered by the automation theorists. But, but not, Venevov suggests that this is actually a misinterpretation of the numbers. And in order to prove this, he wants to take a closer look specifically at changes in manufacturing output and productivity during the period between the 1970s and 2000s. And what he finds is that manufacturing share of labor in high-income countries has greatly suffered, really suffered a lot since the 1970s. So uh, in 1970, around 22% of all workers involved were in, the, in the U.S. were involved in manufacturing. Today, that's 8%. Hmm. So like we said in the last episode, the manufacturing workforce is declining, but manufacturing labor's share of income is also declining. So does this indicate some wage suppression in addition to job displacement? Well, keep in mind that we were talking before all across the board in terms of the economy in general. So labor demand all across the economy seems to be uh, not only are wages stagnant, but uh, labor share of income is declining. So that's, that seems to suggest to, to, you know, if we look at it at economists and we look at that's the case of, uh, uh, in all high-income countries, it seems that just workers aren't inside in high, isn't as high as demand right even though productivity is increasing uh, that's one side of the equation the other side has to do with this the loss of manufacturing jobs in places like the u.s right or the, let's say the the loss of the share of the workforce that actually works in manufacturing and i think we need to keep those things separate from now before we go back and put them together um because these this decline of the numbers in terms of p in terms of actual percent of the workforce working in in manufacturing across high income countries is is has seen a similar decline. So in the UK, France, Germany, Japan, we've seen a similar decline, uh, precipitous falls from you know like we've seen in the US. Nonetheless, in these countries, real data value added in manufacturing, so GDP part of the economy that's manufacturing, has continued to increase in that period. Um, sluggishly but it's continuing to increase so at first sight the data seems to support the claims of the automation theorists more productivity less demand for labor overall in the economy um and we've been losing manufacturing jobs right these three things seems to suggest automation 
But there's a, according to Benavov, there's a problem with this account because it, uh, as the data suggests, uh, that product uh, productivity manufacturing has been growing at a sluggish pace for uh, for decades. And this, you know, this this is this touches on this this Susan Houseman art, uh, argument, right? Yeah, it's it's very reminiscent of. Houseman's argument, which we talked about last episode, but Benavov has scaled it to account for similar trends across the developed world. Right. So Benavov cites evidence that the automation theorists have actually discounted the true sluggish pace of manufacturing productivity growth, not only in the, particularly in the U.S., because there has been a steady productivity growth in the U.S. nonetheless since the 1950s. So let's get let's try to get our hands, heads around what he means here. He argues that the growth rate statistics in manufacturing in the U.S. are actually overinflated because of the way output is measured in computers. So, for instance, counting computers with more processing speed as equivalent to the production of more computers. And he cites this Hausman article and a couple of other researchers whose work we discussed last week. And he says that correcting these rates actually brings U.S. manufacturing output rates in line with what we've seen happening in other high-income countries where manufacturing productivity growth rates have actually fallen dramatically since their peak in the post-war period. Now we're talking about productivity growth, manufacturing productivity growth rates. So he says, in fact, when looked at from a global perspective, we find that in high-income countries, output and productivity rates in manufacturing have declined across the board. But um, by the early years of the 21st century, productivity growth rates were rising a little bit faster than output rates. Um while manufacturing unemployment was contracting rapidly. So in other language, you know, Benevet finds that it is that across the board in high-income countries, productivity growth in manufacturing only appeared to be increasing at a high rate in comparison with a low rate of total output, right? So basically, there's been no, no absolute decline in the levels of output produced in manufacturing in the high-income world, but there has been a decline in the output growth rate. Uh, Got it. Well, so before we move forward, if you don't mind, Juan, um, I think it would be great if we could crystallize the difference between output and productivity and how they interact with each other. Benevov links to uh, links. He, he tries to link unemployment to changes in labor productivity and output uh, using the following principle. And this is what he says. Uh, For any given industry, the rate of growth of output minus the rate of growth of labor productivity equals the rate of growth of employment. Mm-hmm. So if productivity growth is higher than output growth using this formula, then we get more unemployment. And if output growth is higher than productivity growth, then we get less unemployment. And labor productivity refers to real economic output per labor hour. And output refers to the value of the quantity of goods produced. Rising input costs can make labor less productive because they reduce the value of output produced. But that's not really what Benavov is saying here, right? For non-economists like me, how do we explain situations where productivity is growing faster than output without worrying about input costs? Uh, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think this is essential to Benavov's argument. And I, I think if we look at a case study from the text, we can kind of try to understand what he means. Uh, here's from the text, an excerpt. So, during the so-called golden age of post-war capitalism, productivity growth rates in French manufacturing were much higher than they are today, 5.2% per year on average between 1915 and 1973. But 
Output growth rates were even higher than that, 5.9% per year, as a result of steady increase in employment of 0.7% per year. Since 1973, both output and productivity rates have declined, but output rates fell more sharply than productivity rates. And by the early years of the 21st century, productivity growth rates, although much slower, at a 2.7% per year, were now faster than their corresponding output growth rates at 0.9%, as manufacturing employment contracted rapidly 1.7% per year. So really what Benavov is saying is that manufacturing productivity growth is higher relative to manufacturing output growth because manufacturing workforces have dramatically shrunk. So smaller workforces are working more efficiently to to produce less, right? But still, mm-hmm. we haven't arrived at a clear explanation of the shrinking manufacturing workforce. Yeah, and let's let's put these two these ideas in in everything we just reviewed. I think into a couple of points, which you, I think you just uh, you got us there, right? Which is on the one hand, we've seen in high income countries a smaller a, a fall in the demand for labor. Basically, labor is not as in demand uh there's a stagnation of wages and there's a smaller share of all income that's being taken by workers as opposed to capital right um basically wages are supposed to profit going into uh uh going into the business of those who own capital uh on the other hand then he's looking at the fact that he's looking at the numbers and he's seeing that productivity growth and basically the rate of productivity of of productivity and the sort of the rate of output total output which were sort of rising together in the post-war period in the 1970s we started seeing uh, a fall in both but by the early 20th century 21st century the productivity was a little productivity was just going basically at a slightly higher rate than output because output was so stagnant so it looks like productivity rates have been going up uh right you know basically at a, a productivity has been basically looks like it's been going up at a, at a good rate but it's only against a really sluggish marker overall output at at a world level has been has been stagnant so so let's look at that world level numbers i think this really gives us the sort of starkness of of what he's talking about he benefit argues that this output-led deindustrialization um cannot be explained in technological terms so in fact he says deindustrialization goes beyond high-income countries and the numbers show that it has affected middle-income countries and low-income countries since the 1970s and 80s basically shortly after it began in the high-income countries and looking at the manufacturing numbers globally beneva finds that the manufacturing output has declined at a global level so in the in the 50s just to put it in perspective in the 50s and 60s global manufacturing output expand expanded by seven percent or so per year so think about that the economy the economy or the, the manufacturing sector of the economy at a global le- level was expanding at seven percent per year that's that's huge right uh, the rate fell to under five percent globally in the 70s three percent uh, between 1980 and 2007 and since the 2008 crisis manufacturing output has expanded at just about 1.6 percent per year globally and this includes the dramatic expansion of manufacturing output in china which i think is really key to understand right all of those jobs that left manufacturing jobs that have left from other countries to china that's included in this right manufacturing basically as an industry globally has been stagnant since at 
basically since 2008, but, but falling, increasingly falling since the 1970s. And again, according to Venevav, this global slow, slowdown in manufacturing output since the 1970s explains why productivity growth in manufacturing appears to be growing at a, at a quick rate, uh, even if it's falling relative to the post-war era, right? Yeah, that's helpful and scary. Uh, so, so in other words, manufacturing productivity growth seems to be doing well, at least superficially, because output growth is doing so poorly in comparison. And perhaps this isn't, you know, a relationship we typically look for because we assume the economy is strong. Benavov challenges that perception by suggesting that labor globally truly is not stable. Right. And there's a, there's a, there's a lack of demand for labor, right? And it's also shown, he's, he's, he tries to show it, how it, uh, we see it in the fall of wages, a relative fall or stagnation of wages, and the lack of, and uh, the fact that labor is taken in comparably uh, much less than it used to, uh, based, let's say, with basically 1980. Um, furthermore, Venevov argues that as manufacturing output became stagnant after the 60s worldwide, there hasn't been any other sector of the economy that has been able to step in as an engine for economic growth. So the slowdown in manufacturing rates of output growth is, has been accompanied by a global slowdown in general overall economic growth rates. So total GDP worldwide has been basically, basically growing very sluggishly. And that, to him, is related to the fact that there hasn't been anything that has stepped in like manufacturing in the post-war era to grow economies. So it, it is this fall in manufacturing output accompanied by the general fall in rates of economic growth worldwide since the 1970s that for Venevov explains what he calls the global system-wide decline in the demand for labor, not automation. Um, tell me, Jason, what do you, I know we've been reviewing a lot of stuff and I bet some of our listeners are a bit dizzy with stats and and these sort of this, these these ideas, right? So, what do you make of this argument so far? Yeah, don't you wish we were talking about strategic communication instead? <laughs> Some of this intersects with the local political discourses we discussed last episode, um, based on Houseman's research, which has really become the face of the offshoring discourse in the U.S. Manufacturing output growth has slowed considerably over the last two decades. And this is correlated with a decline in manufacturing labor. And depending on which study you cite, declining manufacturing labor either cannot be explained by humans substituting automation, or it is only partially explained by a broader definition of automation. That's going back to our discussion on the sem semantics of automation. So, but, but remember that manufacturing uh, data that Benevov cites doesn't really take into consideration the growing contracting workforce, or at least I don't think it does. So um, I don't know if this is a phenomenon that exists outside of the U.S., but we have many manufacturing workers who are transferring from full-time employment status to temporary status, essentially performing the same tasks within the same manufacturing plants, but as contractors. And this is an observation that Houseman herself, ma herself makes. So there are a lot of there are a lot of downsides associated with the growing contracting workforce, but I think we should acknowledge it as a mitigating factor. And at the same time, we could also understand this, um, you know, the growth of the contracting workforce as a response to declining labor demand, which may, may in fact support Benavov's overall argument. More importantly, uh, if we get to the crux of Benavov's argument, uh, are we saying there just isn't enough demand anymore? Um, that we're desperately trying to get prices down to increase consumption through things like automation and offshoring, 
but were really doomed to fail in, in these techniques. Benevov suggests that some kind of crisis is required to generate the volume of demand that is required to change the tides in terms of output growth, something like you know what happened in the aftermath of World War II in Europe, and we had the Marshall Plan. Now, it's odd to think about the economy in these terms. Classical economics will have us believe that demand is magically generated by supply, at least at the right, right price and in the long run, but what Benevov is suggesting here is that we've essentially produced too much. So can you help? help me and our listeners understand Juan what does it mean to produce too much yeah let's let's take two things that you said i think are really important to his argument one whether we can whether these numbers of manufacturing job losses or the amount you know especially in the us are taken into account things like uh the move of labor into contracting jobs right um i think on the, I think that uh, I think that doesn't really affect the argument very much because a lot of it relies on the, on the sort of a sort of very global perspective that shows that manufacturing worldwide has been ext- extremely st- uh, stagnant in, in terms of its growth since the seventies. So I mean, I think that's really hard to dispute that at the global level, manufacturing is stagnant since the end of the, glo- the the golden era of capitalism, the World War II period. And not only that, specifically since the 2008 crisis. I mean, 1.6% annually in terms of manufacturing growth worldwide just shows you the this, this starkness of how stuck industri- uh, um, basically manufacturing is. And he's, he's showing how that's tied to a global sort of slowdown in, in economic growth. So we could actually read this move of of forces into contracting jobs as part of the kind of natural moves that that firms are going to make and i think you're right in the sense that this supports his argument or right in suggesting that it might support his argument uh this is exactly what what firms have to do to compete in a in terms of manufacturing they have to think about what a a company does they have to have a very uh very kind of uh, nimble supply chains where they can play off suppliers against each other to get the lowest price. Sometimes that means the most labor-intensive elements of the supply chain are overseas. Sometimes it means they've been pushed into contracting jobs where you don't have to worry about things like unionized labor, about uh, union wages, about things of that matter, right? This is the only way as a firm that you can be competitive in a market that is not growing, where you have to find either you have to find either ways to sort of like create nimble supply chains or automate, right? So automation is part of the equation here. Um, and secondly, uh, this question I think is crucial that you're asking, Jason, which is what does this mean? Like, does this mean we supply too much? What do you mean there's no demand? Like, obviously there's people that need stuff and want stuff. So how could that possibly be? And I think this is this is the crux of his argument. Um, and this has to do with what is his explanation for this stagnation of economic growth uh, tied to stagnation of manufacturing growth output? What is the cause of this stagnation, right? And let me read directly from Venevov's text to see what he means by this idea of system overcapacity because I think it's here's where we need to start thinking about um, you were talking about how classic economics has a specific way of seeing the whole problem of supply and demand. And we also, I think, have to understand the problem of supply and demand as a question of actual geography, space, 
and material things, right? Um, industries, things that you build, people that consume them, things that have a a, li- a shelf life, things that have a reprodu- a life of being reproduced and bought again, and so forth like that, and actual people with wages that can buy things and 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 people who can't, right? So let's. I'm going to read directly from from his article. If anybody checks it out, this is a this is starts in about page 26 of the article, um, and he says, seen from this perspective, the global wave, and he's talking about the perspective of. Uh, system over capacity. The global wave of deindustrialization can be said to find its origins not in runaway technical change, but rather in worsening overcapacity in world markets for manufactured goods. The rise of in overcapacity developed stepwise after World War II. In the immediate post-war period, the US hosted the most dynamic economy in the world with the most advanced technologies under the threat of communist expansion within Europe, as well as in East and Southeast Southeast Asia, the U.S. proved willing to share its technological largesse with its former imperial competitors, Germany and Japan, as well as other frontline, quote-unquote, countries, in order to bring them all under the U.S. security umbrella. In the first few decades of the post-World War II era, these technology transfers were a major boost to economic growth in Europe and Japan, opening up opportunities for export-led expansion. This strategy was also supported by the devaluation of European and Japanese currencies against the dollar. By the way, this is what we're giving crap to China about, right? However, but this in this case, we, we understood that it was policy to make these countries uh, compete. However, as Robert Brenner has argued, rising manufacturing capacity across the globe quickly generated overcapacity, issuing, issuing in a long downturn uh, in manufacturing output growth rates. Um. I think what's really crucial about this last part is the very beginning where he says, worsening overcapacity in world markets for manufactured goods. You Markets for manufactured goods are markets where people have money to buy manufactured goods, right? For there to be people to buy manufactured goods, you need salaries. You need middle class salaries. You are not going to be able to, no one is going to go sell their manufacturing goods in Africa beyond the small pockets of places where people have salaries. No one's going to go to sell that stuff for people that cannot afford it, right? This is not how the the market works. The market is looking for people to buy its goods uh, at a competitive price so they can make a profit. Um, They are not going to go to places in Latin America where people don't have salaries. But how how are people going to have salaries? They have to be tied into economies that are growing they have to be tied to to into industries that provide them with that salary so if you have no economic growth or stagnant economic growth deindustrialization and basically now almost a global economy as opposed to world war ii where you had a much less of the population much more less of the population i mean the percentage wise and now we have way more people and much more of it actually integrated into the economic market and fighting for a piece of the pie when you have these people fighting for a, uh, uh, for a piece of the pie in a, an economy that's not growing, it means that you do not have salaries. You do not have salaries for people to actually pay for things that people can build, indus- that industries can build. More or less, you have what they're calling system overcapacity, right? Where you have middle, middle, middle income markets, middle classes that can afford things, you can only sell so much, right? So... And this, I think, goes to something I think very intuitive, 
which is every American who has a salary can buy, you know, a lot of stuff, but there's only so much they can buy within their range of income. There's only so many fridges and cars and houses that a person can buy, right? If there's if if they're if they're saturated with what they owned, yes, I might buy a new phone, I buy buy a, a new computer, I might buy a new coat, um, and and a few other things in the coming year, and some you know I might get some services and take a vacation. But in terms of manufacturing goods that are tied to economic growth, I am not going to be buying a new fridge every year. I am not going to be buying a new at least a, a middle income person isn't right someone in a sal on a salary range. Um, this is the problem that he's talking about in terms of system overcapacity. Um, yeah. So, so we're really talking about companies being able to generate profit as opposed to just income. It's because that, that profit is built off the backs of, you know, being able to maintain a competitive edge in the market, which is dependent on your ability to grow. Constantly, right. 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 Because I, I mean, a firm works in terms of profit, right? It doesn't sell things for, for production cost. It can't, or otherwise it's pushed out of the market. Um, but if there's no growth in manufacturing, and manufacturing is the only engine for economic growth, uh, what does this tell you? And you have nobody, no demand for manufacturing goods. You basically have a lot of companies fighting for a, for a stagnant manufacturing market. Um, and how do they fight for it? Well, there's no there's no mass demand or increase in demand uh, for their goods, so they have to outwit the competitor. Uh, they have to be more nimble than the competitor. They have to get their products there faster. They have to get their products there slightly cheaper. How do you get your products there slightly cheaper and still make a profit? You have to cut out labor or you have to automate things, right? Or you have to globalize supply chains. Um, uh, just uh, just in time delivery models. You know, this is, I mean, I think we can also th start thinking about how this is related to the rise of Amazon. You know, it's yeah. it's a model that is based on just-in-time delivery of, of goods and services. Uh, it's, we can, I don't understand how, I mean, to me, I don't understand how we can understand how, to, you asked a question at the beginning of our episode, which I think is really important. This has, this is not being discussed at the, this sort of global slackening of manufacturing growth worldwide and global economic growth worldwide is not being discussed in our presidential primaries because it's hard to frame it for the u.s constituency but it's also a problem because it makes it means that we don't we can't understand uh all of these different phenomena how can we understand these phenomena if we're not looking at the big picture globally economically right um now Veneva argues that this explanation allows us to understand, therefore, several phenomena. Uh, for one, the buildup of financialized capital in deindustrializing de countries. So as investors are chasing liquid assets rather than investment in new capital, right? If there's no growth in manufacturing and you're an investor, where are you going to put your money? You're not going to put it in a new plant. You're not going to put it in a new, you know, in a new plant that's going to build whatever it is, manufacturing good. You're going to look... You're going to do what basically Wall Street does nowadays, which is they're betting on, on liquidity markets. How much are grains going to be? So and so and so. Are people going to pay their mortgages? So think, for instance, about the 2008 crisis, which was brought on by the financialization of the housing market and things like derivatives and all these other things, right? That people barely understand um, because they're so complex. 
Also, it allows us to understand why firms have sought to globalize supply chains, moving labor overseas in some cases, and sometimes looking to automate production lines. And uh, in other cases, uh, to gain a competitive advantage in a stagnant market, uh, right? It helps us see how, how companies, in order to gain this competitive advantage, with are having to do this with an increasing number of countries and workers now integrated in the in the global economy, and certainly more of the world's population than compared to the post-war area. And since overcapacity is apparently worse in agriculture, which is something we haven't even discussed, right? It's not that people are leaving manufacturing and going to agriculture. Agriculture is another one of those industries that long ago, before manufacturing, became, there was an overcapacity. We can produce way more food than we can even need for all the people that we have on this planet. This also explains why low-income countries have felt compelled and been pushed to liberalize their markets and attempt to break into a crowded and stagnant manufacturing market, since historically this has been the only way to ensure economic growth. Um, they have thus opened their doors to cheap labor. You could, you know, China, Latin America, Africa, name it. In Latin America, in particular, governments, including left-leaning governments, have focused on mining and oil extraction as a way of ensuring economic growth. That's how they have tapped in for economic growth, which is actually really interesting and paradoxical. Some of the most left-wing governments in Latin America that have done a great job of growing the economies have done it through things that are things like mining and oil extraction that are very, you know, have all kinds of negative side effects. Uh, and they've been criticized heavily for doing this. So I want to finish discussing Benavav's argument by which I think the, the listener can tell that, I'm, that I share a sort of sense of its importance by pointing out that in the very last paragraph, he actually does mention that in the context of stagnant manufacturing and overall economic output, stagnant economic output growth, automation can indeed threaten to displace many jobs and be destructive. And that he and he wants to underline that, however, that automation is not the main driver of this loss of jobs. Um, what do you think about you know this end of his argument, Jason? Let's make sure we're fully capturing this concept of system overcapacity Mm -hmm. at risk of beating a dead horse here. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor. <laughs>